Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we start, a warning. Today's episode contains strong language, discussions of suicide, and descriptions of violence in war that some listeners might find distressing. We're at a boxing club in Liverpool, a meeting place for ex-soldiers who served in Afghanistan and a support network for those scarred by the war. For some, it's the only way they have of processing the trauma and the defeat. Last August. In one provincial capital after another, the Taliban are running up their colours and taking control. The Taliban's advance across Afghanistan is unprecedented. The Taliban regained control faster than almost anyone expected. After 20 years, British troops watched as everything they fought for crumbled. The war gone by still haunts their memories and claims lives, even as it fades from the headlines. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the first of a special two-part investigation, PTSD and the war. Part one, the trauma. I'm Anthony Lloyd and I'm a foreign correspondent for The Times. And Ant, since Afghanistan fell to the Taliban last summer, you've been speaking to former members of Two Rifles, an infantry battalion in in the army, who did tours of Afghanistan just over a decade ago. Tell me, why? why? Why now? Why this battalion? There are a number of reasons why I wanted to focus on on Two Rifles. So first of all, the Rifles are the biggest British infantry regiment. At the time of the Afghan campaign, they had five battalions. They did more operational tours, six-month tours, in Afghanistan than any other 
regiment. Now, they've now got a very acute problem of suicide amongst veterans of the Afghan campaign. The regiment lost 55 soldiers killed in Afghanistan, at least 22 riflemen, former riflemen and officers have taken their own lives. The figure is probably much higher than that. It's difficult to ascertain exactly because there are no official records charting suicides of veterans of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You are a former soldier. You're a green jacket, which would have placed you in the rifles now too. Did that change the way people spoke to you about the issues? Did it change your understanding of them too? It helped in that there were many similar reference points of places, of people, of events, and also of language, of, you know, sense of the crack, banter. But I would never describe myself as a veteran. I was in the Royal Green Jackets for five years. I have been on operational tours in Northern Ireland and the Gulf back in the day, but I didn't see action. If pushed, I'd describe myself as an ex-soldier, but really only secondarily to saying I was a journalist. It's a very specific experience to be in combat operations, and it can lead to a very specific form of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I wouldn't confuse my own experiences, which were utterly benign, really, compared to, to what went on in Afghanistan, with those of the soldiers with whom I was speaking. Tell me, from the people you've spoken to, what were their responses on the day in August when Kabul fell to the Taliban, when they watched everything they'd been out there fighting for suddenly crumbling? I spoke to a lot of soldiers, and I spoke to a lot of former soldiers. What was very interesting as a general rule for a start was those who had left the army had far more made their peace over what the fate of Afghanistan might be than those who were still in the army. Those who had left the army largely said, we thought it would end up going that way. And our feelings were geared entirely to our own six-month tours there. I mean, just talk me through the people you spoke to and, and what each of their responses were as they watched back in August. I had been embedded briefly with two rifles in 2009. There were a number of people who would happily speak to me off the record but didn't want to speak to me on the record either because they were still serving or because they were just describing very intimate details about their mental health that they didn't want in the public domain with their name attached to it. However, there were a number who were prepared to speak to me publicly. Just uh, your name, how long you were in the army, what years they were and which tour you did in Afghanistan. So my name is Rehan Pasha, known commonly as Pash. Uh, Rehan Pasha was, actually was a reservist and in his life before the army had been a photographer. He'd been a journalist. I served two operational tours, one in Iraq and in Afghanistan, which was in 2009. And that was with two rifles? That was with two rifles. How old were you when you went? I was 37 when I left for Afghanistan. I turned 38 on tour. They didn't have much sense of an overall campaign or war even. I wasn't a flag waver. I wasn't even a professional soldier. I was a reservist, but... I remember one couple of conversations, one with one chap, young rifleman, saying, well, what are we doing this for? You know, sort of thing. The level of ignorance that we had, even the town that we were based in for six months, I'm not sure how much the army itself understood what we were doing. Were we keeping the peace? 
were we nation building, which is a lot different because it's quite tumultuous to make a nation. If you're going to ask someone to put their life on the line, then I think we owe them a little bit more than, than the sort of explanation that they were given. Life moved on. You know, I then had a child. I tell you what I did feel that, and still now little echoes of it is moments, just moments of intense rage. What was the correct um, terminology of your role? I was a combat medical technician. Caroline Bull, who had actually been a combat medic back in 2009. Just want to start with, with the current. On August 15th, which was the day the Taliban um, captured Kabul, can you remember that day? Yeah, I think I've got, I just remember sitting at home watching it all day. Yeah, you, you kind of watch it with, a, with great interest, but also great, kind of great helplessness, I suppose. Certainly the, the adrenaline started going. It was kind of, you know, this is, something's happening again. You, you emotionally involved with it and you kind of think back to, to the time you spent there and shock, I suppose. And then you think, how, how could you let this happen when we've, we did so much and spent so much time there? Do you re recognise, and this isn't a catch-up question, I'm really interested, do you recognise what has happened as a, as a defeat? Um, not really, not to us, not really. I don't think it was a war that could be won or lost, really. Wars are more complicated than that. It's really interesting, they had very different responses. I love being a soldier, and I know all the blokes say that, but you've you got to imagine that I've come from nothing. Paul Jacobs. I'm so proud to be wearing the greens, 95 combats, my boots are dead clean. I've got my own little bathroom there. I've got my own little walking wardrobe. That's a double bed. That's my own TV. And I'm safe. For the first time in a long time, I feel safe. Paul Jacobs has emerged as one of the most inspiring soldiers of the Afghan campaign. Was the, the army the first real family that you, you found? or is Absolutely. That... It's the only thing that's been printed upon my heart. He lost his sight completely in 2009. The soldier in front of him was killed by an IED. I mean, he's climbed Kilimanjaro, he's run marathons, done triathlons. A truly amazing man who tests repeatedly the boundaries of, of what a blind survivor can achieve. When the Taliban took Kabul, Paul Jacobs told me that he was calm about it for a few days until he got a phone call from another veteran of that 2009 tour. They talked about it for a while, obviously released a huge amount of emotion in Paul, so yeah. he wept. And I really lost my head, and I mean, what came out of my eyes was like a bloody waterfall. I cried and I cried and I cried. And he had a tough year anyway last year, because it wasn't just the fall of Afghanistan. There were at least three two-rifle suicides or, or death by misadventure amongst those who had served there, which brings to at least 10 suicides or death by misadventure in two rifles. Amongst the dead were people he knew. We started getting all these... Unfortunately, these riflemen, we had three riflemen in a matter of days, didn't we, where they just decided to commit suicide. At the beginning of this year, do you remember? Yeah. And I got in touch with mental health, and I've got the emails to show you. I've had, even today, nothing. I begged them for help. These are still early days. 
what will be the impact on veterans' mental health? For a start, if you look at an organisation like Combat Stress, which is probably the best-known British charity dealing with veterans' mental health in the UK, they receive double the number of calls that they normally receive in the month following the fall of Kabul. And there's something called moral injury as well, which is a component part of PTSD. It doesn't cause PTSD in itself, but it's a complicating factor. Moral injury is a, is a slightly weird phrase, but basically, if you're a soldier, if you've ended up being in situations where, I don't know, for example, civilians were killed, maybe you killed a civilian, maybe someone in your unit killed a civilian, maybe you, you failed to save a wounded comrade and you've second-guessed it afterwards and thought, well, if I'd done this, I might have saved their life. While the campaign was going on, and there was still some thought that ultimately the campaign had a point and might result in a victory that led Afghanistan to a better place, you could put your feelings around the moral injury that you'd endured at the time in a particular space. There was some greater moral victory to be won. Yes, but that isn't what happened. The war was lost. The war has been lost. So in the long term, there might be an accelerated mental health crisis as a result of the war having been lost. That's certainly the concern of a lot of senior officers, or those senior officers, may I say, who care to acknowledge the war has been lost. Anthony, with the two rifles, one of the reasons, as you've said, that you spoke to them is because they suffered some of the worst losses amongst the British Army during the the war in Afghanistan. And I know that you were there for part of their tour. Paint a picture for us of what happened. Okay, so Sangin is a district. Sangin is also uh, the name of a small town, which is the namesake district centre. When you first turned up, the tour was quite quiet. It was quiet. That's Rehan Pasha again. He was in Sangin with the two rifles. I remember being briefed by a platoon from the Royal Marines who we were taking over from. And I remember their lieutenant saying to us, these guys are not going to hit you straight away. You know, it's going to be very quiet. They're going to watch and wait. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to miss the war. Everything's happened. It's all quietened down now. But it was exactly as those bootnecks said. More British soldiers lost their lives in Sangin in the entire Afghan campaign than anywhere else. I mean, mm. there were plenty of bad places in Afghanistan. Sangin was the worst. It killed more coalition troops than anywhere. 2009 was the year the war started slipping away from the coalition. By that point, any notion that Helmand could be kind of subdued, or the war, you know, it's like, it's like trying to deal with a wasp's nest fighting in Afghanistan. The more people you kill, the worse you will make the situation. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Major General Rob Thompson, um, a rifleman, um, and today a Major General. Major General Rob Thompson. Rob Thompson was the commander of two rifles back in 2009. I met him in an extremely emotional interview, actually, in an extremely unemotional building, the Ministry of Defence building in London. I commanded two rifles battle group back in 2009 when we were based in Sangin in the Upper Helmand Valley. He was a lieutenant colonel during that toughest of tours. We were a tight gang. We were operationally experienced. People had been in Basra 10 operations in 10 years. But there was no sense of arrogance. We knew we were going into an area that was going to be really hard. Preparing the battalion for the tour was really, really important in telling people the purpose behind we were us going there. We were there to make the UK safer and then we were there to better the lot of the Afghan people. And that's what I wanted every rifle in the battalion to understand. We talked people through preparation, so 
soldiers uh, were made, we all made our wills. We talked about writing letters to loved ones. I remember writing. Do you want me to hit pause for a no, moment? Why don't I hit the switch for a minute and let you have a look? Okay. When two rifles there, they had their headquarters, thanking district centre, but then they had various other platoons and companies out in, in patrol bases. And one of the patrol bases, which was, was very close by, was a place called Wishtan. Wishtan was always a bad place. On the 10th of July, 2009, a patrol went out from Wishtan, two rifles troops in the morning. One of the soldiers, trod on an IED or set an IED off. That soldier was killed. Platoon commander lost a leg. Another soldier was very badly wounded. And I believe a few other soldiers had lesser injuries. A quick reaction force rushed out to help the patrol get back in with their wounded and recover the dead riflemen. I was still in the patrol base in Wishton with the QRF. And we heard that. Yeah. You heard there was small arms fire too, or it was just one big explosion? Heard the explosion from where we were, and after that it's just noise. So, yeah, kit on. I grabbed someone from another platoon, Paul Jacobs. Paul, it's up for everything. A man was a legend. He was just a legend. You just knew going to him you would get a volunteer. And I felt a bit guilty about that, actually. But he was just so up for it. What happens then is they're trying to get the casualties to a helicopter landing site. People already got to work with dealing with casualties. The rest of the platoon trying to find an HLS helicopter landing site. But what they were finding was just like a daisy chain of IEDs everywhere. IEDs all over the place. And this is what I mean by the Taliban look, knowing our drills. They, they knew how we reacted to casualties. It became quickly apparent this was not an option. So the plan quickly changed. They couldn't evacuate their wounded and dead to a helicopter landing site because there were too many IEDs. So they had to recover them back to the patrol base in Wishtan. As we were coming down to the, to the bazaar, to the main road, the Valon guards, the initial guys, were skirting around a building near enough to trigger a set of IEDs. And a series of other IEDs go off. They're in the walls, you know, on ceilings, all over the place. There was a lot of confusion then. Who was injured still? Who was dead? You know, what it's like, there's dust everywhere, there's noise everywhere. Three more soldiers are killed and a fourth is mortally wounded. And these are big bombs. And, and for those witnessing it, I mean, one explosive does grotesque things to the human body. And those witnesses, they call it rag, either ragdolled or bodies up. You hear a big bang, you look, you see the cloud of smoke and you will see bodies of your comrades flying through the air. Some of these soldiers are crying. They, you know, you can't run around and do exactly what you want. You have, it takes ages even to recover what's left of a body because you have to have your Valen guys, the guys that got Valen metal detector, it's a bomb detector out front to try and scan a safe passage to recover the bodies or, or parts of bodies in this case. They were being shot at as well. So for a time they were pinned down by fire. A lot of shouting, a lot of screaming. There was a team of us there and it just, 
I didn't even think about it, just kicked in. Caroline Bull. You know, the old meat train, especially in medical training, you, 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 you just do repetition until it's ingrained in you. And I think, you know, it works. <laughs> it does work, especially with medical stuff where you've got other stuff happening. And what are her memories of, of what happened on the day? She was there in the patrol base and she would have helped triage the casualties when they were brought in. You've got to imagine the nature of these injuries when someone's trodden on an IED or been hit by an IED blaster. You know, hideous casualties come in. It's slightly more horrific than you would imagine. You might have emotions coming into it, but actually, yeah, I just didn't even think about it. Just got on it and you can think about it afterwards. She said, look, at that stage, my training kicked in. I didn't have a problem with the blood, the guts and the gore. That wasn't my issue. The interesting thing in her case, she was very badly affected by PTSD years later. Rehan Pasha was part of the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force. He remembers in Iraq he'd seen dogs eating bits of soldiers that had been blown up. He, he wanted to stop that happening on this occasion, so he's picking up bits of, of dead soldier and putting them on a stretcher so the dogs wouldn't get them. I think nobody needs to be overlooking, you know, dogs eating their mate sort of thing. So I remember scooping a bit up and, you know, taking it with me and, like, trying to get it with the boy afterwards. You know, at some stages there are gunfire still because of the Taliban are firing and others, you know, it's, it's chaos. It's very hot. Everyone's very pegged down. They get, finally, the bodies and the, the wounded and the survivors back into the patrol base. There's a lot of screaming, a lot of shouting. There's a lot of shock. It's, it, that's how it was. I mean, it just sounds like unimaginable horror. Basically, a platoon's worth of British soldiers were either killed or wounded in that incident. So the impact of that was huge. It was also the worst loss for the British Army during the entire Afghan campaign in a single incident. And the memory of that still sort of pulls like a bit of a black hole in the minds of veterans from that battalion when they think about the tour and when they recount what happened. It sounds devastating, the day itself and, and the impact. For the people who were left in that patrol base, who were, who were there on the day, who were having to deal with what was happening, how do they describe it? For example, tell me about Rehan Pasha. He described the aftermath that night, trying to comfort very young soldiers whose friends had been blown apart and saying you could only go so far with the comfort. Beyond... Beyond just remind them that, you know, these were good guys and, well, you know, oh, what can you say to someone at that point? You can't take away someone's grief. At the end of it, you had to leave them with it. More importantly, I was saying, well, how did it work out after that? It's an invisible enemy. So who can you hit out at? You know, who can you hit out at? Oh, that's just got killed here. And the people that did it are out there. And it would kill me to let them go out there and laugh at us while I'm not trying to get them. These fuckers just killed five of our platoon. I don't want to let them just get away with that sort of thing. And that was my sort of motivator. For us to stop doing our job now means that the Taliban have got one over on us and those guys have died for nothing. So that was his take on it. I remember going into Wishton the day after the 10th of July when the five boys were killed and just sitting and talking. Major General Rob Thompson. And... We remembered those who had fallen and we were very proud of them. So the night anybody was killed, we gathered and we had a service. Wherever we were in the valley, we stopped that evening 
and we remembered the lad who was killed. And I can still remember the last post was played, and we were lucky in Jackson because we had the Bugle Major, and Bugle Major Bud could play the last post like nobody else. But at the end of the service, there was a really important moment. I would shout at the Bugle Major, and he'd shout back, yes, so I'd say, get back to the ramparts. And we'd get back on the ramparts. And we were hurting, but we weren't for shaking. And we knew that the baton had been passed to us and whoever had died that day would not want us to shrink back from the task because we were amongst friends and amongst friends you do not drop batons. If you understand grief and loss and war oneself, it doesn't, it's not the same for me. I'm not a commanding officer, I'm a journalist, but I'm not, you know, a stranger to, to loss in war. I don't know. Yeah, I really, I felt for him. I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. That was a horrendous day in the history of the British Army, let alone for the two rifles. But things didn't get much better. A month later, it's Afghan presidential election day, 20th of August, 2009. Early on, it looked as though the terrorist tactics had failed. Hundreds defied the Taliban threats at this polling centre in Kabul, determined to have their say in Afghanistan's future. And you're actually there in Afghanistan embedded with British troops. Who were you with? And tell me what happened. I just remember that it was certainly the morning 
was almost non-stop firing from the ramparts of the roof. So the Taliban were firing at the base, the soldiers were firing back at the Taliban. So there was a lot of shooting. They were shooting from aircraft, shooting from the ground. Taliban were mortaring the base as well and firing at it with rockets. That was election day. Now, in the middle of it all, at one point I go into the ops room. There's a sudden chatter of radio traffic. There's an IED incident. And again, it's Wishtan. And there was a patrol that had gone out and there was a young rifleman, he's called Jonathan Young, he was a private soldier, sent in from another regiment to replace one of the dead soldiers from the rifles. And he had only been, I think he'd been in country for 18 days. He was also 18 years old. He trod on an IED and it killed him. Just behind him was a rifleman. Paul Jacobs was then 20 years old, a natural soldier. Paul Jacobs was just behind Private Young. Gets down on his belly. He's already slightly wounded. He's covered in Young's blood. And he's trying to recover Young's body and rifle when another soldier, Sergeant Paul McAleese, steps over Paul Jacobs, unwittingly triggers another IED, which kills McAleese, and blasts shrapnel into Jacobs' thighs, arm, face, and blinds him. It's all right when you're sighted because you can take your mind away from what's in your head because you can look at the flowers, you can look at your babies or whatever it is. But for me, when I'm in a dark place, the last image I see is Private Young. Private Young was killed the same day that was you trying, were injured. That I was, was trying to get to him. He was that close to me where you are. I was the, the man behind him. And I just remember the IED going off and Youngie and I just thought, oh, fuck, here we go. It was down to me to get the claw around what was left of his body, find his rifle. So I got an earpiece in, the sun's beating down on my face, I'm covered in claret. Then I realised that we were tripping a secondary device. And then you managed to get yourself back to a place where you could be recovered. Yeah, suffering multiple injuries, do you know what I mean? So I hear that going on as a, as a series of flurries of activity in the ops room on the radio. Rob Thompson, who at the time is a lieutenant colonel, I remember him turning to me with these kind of eyes luminous with, with immediate grief, you could see it. I don't wish to harp on this, but I remember that day, August the 20th. I remember you saying to me, and I've just lost one of my best soldiers. I remember that moment very, very well. And I turned up just after the, must have turned up just after the earlier incident on August the 13th, because I remember that memorial um, very, very clearly. And just like the earlier events in July, Caroline Ball, the medic, is on hand. We'd forward mounted down the road, but then I think the incident happened, I don't know, 500 metres up the road or something. She rushes out from her location with one other medic and some soldiers to get to the scene. The scene's, as you might expect, pretty horrific. She finds Paul Jacobs, who's managed to crawl and stagger, though blinded, back out of the kill zone. I actually dealt with Paul Jacobs. Uh, he was injured. He, he lost his sight. Um, in that incident? In that incident. Yeah, he was, he was very close to the blast. So he was my casualty who I evacuated back. And then... Oh, I was there shooting at the time? Yeah, that? I believe there was. There was a lot been, of shooting over all that day. I've been told... I've been told... I don't recall <laughs> any of that happening. <laughs> I just remember just running um, into, that, into that space. And she manages to start treating him, get him on a stretcher. They evacuated him in the bucket of a digger, a combat engineer's digger. 
she perches up there with him and it kind of bounces back the couple of hundred yards to Wishtown where she continues to treat him in the bucket and he's evacuated by helicopter. I mean, it does sound like the most horrifying tour. So here's the thing. First of all, there were very specific stresses for infantrymen in the years 2006 to 2012, really, in Afghanistan, which were unlike stresses felt in recent wars. For a start, if you were in Helmand as an infantry soldier, you'd be there for six months and you'd live in a pretty perpetual state of stress for those six months. You wouldn't have any sense of ground gained necessarily, probably not none at all, actually. You wouldn't have any sense of winning, none. You would go out every time the gates you went out and patrol, you'd be extremely stressed as to what could happen. Now, that's a huge amount of stress, long before anybody steps on a bomb. It became one of the bloodiest tours of Afghanistan, back in the summer of 2009, after a series of devastating attacks had left 24 riflemen dead and many more suffering from life-changing injuries. For those who'd survived, the trauma was far from over. Caroline Bull, who had yeah, she'd been a combat medic back in 2009, it just so happened that she had two weeks of leave that came up almost immediately afterwards. Whilst I was home, the guys were repatriated back to the UK and all that follows. Yet again in Wooten Bassett, heads and flags were lowered as the cortege paused for the mourners to place flowers. Another sad procession through the town that's come to represent a nation's loss. So I had what I wouldn't usually have been exposed to media-wise in terms of me seeing stuff I was seeing every day. Whereas well, back in... on TV. Yes, all of that. She came back to the UK, sees at the other side of the kind of TV screen, you know, coffins coming back through Wooden Bassett. And, you know, people acknowledging that, that that's happening around you and you actually having just been there was quite surreal. Very surreal. You know, and people asking, like, oh, how's your talk going? <laughs> and it's like, be, look at the news if you want. It's just... <laughs> just press the button and have a look. Um, and also, they're your, they're your friends and family. They might not want to know that you're, you're in a particularly dangerous spot. So you'd probably... I think I <laughs> didn't lie, but I didn't say exactly where I was and what I was doing. It was unhelpful, I think, in my processing of the situation I'd just been in. When she did become beset by post-traumatic stress disorder years later, it wasn't about the blood, the guts and the gore. It was about the constant anticipatory stress of her job there. She'd be someone who'd been waiting in a very small medical centre, constantly waiting for the sound of explosions or gunfire outside. And that kind of left a barb deep in her psyche, which, which was initiated years later. If you're going into Tesco and you've got all your bits and bobs, which has been perfectly fine, and then you see that there's a queue 
you're just not going to bother because immediately that has given me an anxiety response because <laughs> I have to wait and I, I'm not prepared to do that. But what ha- what happens? You feel yeah, you sick or feel, you feel angry feel, or you feel like, like sick. Over or yeah, what? I just feel sick, frustrated, heart rate increases, you know, all your the kind of physical responses to a, to a stressor. And I just give up. And I plenty of times used to go into shops, gather, gather all my bits and then go, no. <laughs> but then you go out and you feel, you know, slightly alleviated. Um, but yeah. also quite scared, I'm actually. And it's also, like, yeah. I mean, this is really beginning Yeah, this is effect. ridiculous. Yeah. I'm a, I'm Domestic a, I'm a grown adult who can't, can't do it. Yeah. yeah, you can't. We'll be taking a look at what coming home meant for many of the soldiers we've met in this episode tomorrow. Coming up in part two. The start of PTSD might certainly lie in your war experience, but, oh, coming home is much more difficult. As a, as a serving general now, how do you explain, you must get asked a lot, was it worth it or what was the value of that? And, and how do you explain that? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times foreign correspondent, Anthony Lloyd. You can find all of Anthony's reporting, including his work from Afghanistan, at thetimes.co.uk. The producer today was James Shield, and the executive producer is Kate Ford. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please do take a look at the episode description wherever you downloaded this podcast. We've included a list of charities and helplines who will be able to provide support. Thanks for listening. Please do join us again tomorrow for part two. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.